How did your presentation go at your daughter's school today? Are you still a cool dad? Yeah, I think she was happy. I brought um, my laptop so I could show some web. I, first, I asked the kids, who likes the internet? And they all raised their hands. And I was like, who likes playing games and looking at websites? And they all raised their hands. And I said, great. And who likes to draw? Even And who draws even when they're supposed to be listening in school? And they all raised their hands. I said, I did that too. And it went fine from there. It was great. What, what was it like a career day or something? It was career day. Uh, and, and basically, it was like, so you could be the kind of person who doodles in school and likes to tell stories and likes to teach, and you can end up making your own job and supporting your family, and it's pretty cool. So they liked that. But I was overshadowed by a dentist. This oh. dentist, uh, he took a, a block of plastic and carved it into a tooth with all these drills. How do you compete with that? You can't. You can't compete with that. Second place is good enough there. Hopefully, everybody was really good. It's a good school. It's a good, it's public school in New York. It's cool. Nice. A couple of things to get out of the way first. We are not allowed to talk about TV shows on this podcast because boring people write in to complain that we talk about TV all the time. So, okay. I just want to get this out of the way first, though, just so that they can. Doctor Who Madman? If you're boring, just, you know, go make a cup of tea for like five minutes while we talk about this. How excited are both of you about the return of Mad Men for the next season? Dan probably doesn't watch it at all. You know, I'm I'm a few seasons behind. I I watch it. And I enjoy it, but I haven't. I'm not caught up. I have no idea where it can go because it. This is like you're basically watching a person just destroy themselves in slow motion, and you keep hoping for redemption, right? Because we all believe in redemption, and there are moments of redemption, and then. So I don't know where it'll go. I haven't seen the ending. It's a whole new season. But uh, where did we leave Don last? Oh yeah, he don't don't ruin it for Dan. Yeah, I'm don't not. Ru- I'm not into it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I can I can earmuffs. I'll avoid the spoilers. Put your fingers in your ears for a second, Dan, because <laughs> he uh, negotiated that deal with McCann's to sell basically half the company so that he could stop Jim Cutler from forcing him out, which was like a brilliant Don move. And I thought he was back. You know, I know he did it out of desperation, but I thought that. That's like a classic Don again. Yeah? And he actually sat down with, um, wow, it's been a while. His protege, Peggy. Yes. There, there seemed like there was a slight melt there, a slight thaw on the ice there, which is good. And maybe more than slight, like, like, I, cause I think that's the only person he actually has this human relationship with, including his children. He's the only, she's the only one that he has like a one to one equal relationship with. It's weird how. I love how in a well-written and well-acted drama, you can identify with people who are nothing like you and whose values might repulse you in real life, but you side with them and, and, you know, you root for them. It's, it's like, it's like watching a gangster picture and rooting for the gangster. It's like that psychology. But, uh, you know, I mean, like I loved Tony Soprano and he was a horrible man, but I rooted for him. I've never watched The Sopranos, and I've never watched The Wire. Okay, well, you have to do both those things. Um, you must. But uh, I root for Don, and, and I root for, you know, I root for Don while his girlfriend's in the, when he was married in the early seasons, and uh, his wife was almost going out to the car, and his girlfriend was hiding in the car. It's a horrible man. But I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't get caught, right? I hope he doesn't get caught. Well, it's, we've had a long wait for this, because they obviously yeah. they split the last season into two halves, which is such a dick move. I it's, know that. 
It's I, the Harry Potter movies. Ah, I know. And it's the. Have you been watching Hunger Games films too? It's like they split the last. I missed book. the. Th- I missed the last one, but I will see it on. You know, I will. Ah, see it. yeah, I, mean, I know. Too. And it's it's like making the Hobbit into three movies, not f- not two, not one, not one, yeah, not one. Right. I think one would have been a very long film, though. It seems uh, now that I'm rereading it, it seems like there's a lot of action in the Hobbit. When I read it the first time. It seemed like nothing happened. It seemed like a bunch of smelly men sang songs and smoked pipe weed and eventually fought a dragon. And now I'm going, that's not it, though. It's really, com- there's, it's complicated. There's lots of action. That first film, when at the end, the eagles basically fly them within sight of the mountain. And I'm thinking, why don't the eagles fly them all the way? They could take them all the way and they would like cut two films out. But there's anyway. a pretty good core thread on that about the fact that that was what, um, in, in the Lord of the Rings movies, that's what, um, not Merlin, what's his name? Gandalf meant wow, when, he Merlin. Said, <laughs> when he said, fly you fools. There's a theory that what he meant was just fly there when he was fighting the Balrog. Ah, oh. that's clever. Oh, now that is clever. I don't think so. I don't think so either, but it's fun to, it's fun to imagine. Right, so I think boring people are back now. They've obviously come back with a cup of milky tea. Very weak. You just leave the bag in it for like just a Do few seconds. You really seconds. insult your audience like this. <laughs> All the time. And they come back for more. Um, well, three of them do. If you're listening in, hello. What I really want to talk about today, it, I suppose it's kind of related in a lot of ways to Mad Men and advertising and art direction and creative matters in general. And I've been looking forward to, to doing this episode for such a long time. So I suppose that's my way of welcoming you both to the show. Because yeah. I can't think of two people who I'd rather talk about this with than you, Dan Moore and Jeffrey Zeldman, if you hadn't guessed already. Hooray. That's very kind of you. So everybody knows you, Jeffrey. There are, there are tribes in South American jungles that have never seen a white man, but they've read Designing with Web Standards. Wow. I've heard this to be true. <laughs> and Dan, you're, you're an art director and a designer from Philadelphia we are just talking about. Mm-hmm. You've got your own agency now, Super Friendly. I do. Also a developer, also a musician. I hadn't remembered about the musician part, but yeah. Yeah, I haven't played in a long time, but I don't know. I'm not, that, I'm not rusty. I'm not that rusty. And I'd forgotten, but you two used to work together at Happy Cog and Alistair Park. I'd completely gone out of my mind. That's right. I'm actually at the Happy Cog office in Philadelphia right now. Did they know you there? Did you just slip in the back door? Yeah, nobody knows. The, the room is dark, and I'll let them know eventually. You can check out anytime you like. <laughs> Are you just, you know, leeching off their Wi-Fi? That's what I do. It's better than standing outside and doing it. It's cold in Philly today. Yeah, it's cold. It is. It's cold in New York, although not, not as bad as it's been. I've been watching the news about all of the snow. But by the time this goes out, there's probably going to be no snow. It's going to be sort of subtropical in Manhattan. But... Man, there's a lot of snow in America. How long does it take you months to edit these pieces? We're on a um, a two-weekly schedule now. So this will go out while I'm away in Australia, where it'll be blissfully hot. So I'll be thinking about you in your snowy climbs. Nice. Anyway, so I've been giving this talk. I've been giving this talk all year, and I called it Counting Stars, because I got the title mm. from a Don Draper quote. And it sums up, I suppose, my feelings over the last couple of years, I suppose, about the state of design on the web. And 
It's about how the fact that I think that we're in a very great danger of losing some sort of creative soul in the work that we're making for the web. Um, and I think for, for several reasons. Oh, and just a digression. I heard you had a brilliant show with Dan Cedarholm, a brilliant episode of the Big Web Show well, a few you. episodes ago. If I could frame it, I would do. And you started off, you talked about Dan Cedarholm designing his own website, going, well, why did you make your own? Why didn't you just like, buy a template? And I was like, what? Did I say that? I didn't say it that way. <laughs> you said that, I think you said that you were thinking about doing something similar. For a site I have to make now, I'm thinking of just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I want to make a website for the Big Web Show. This is my podcast. Uh, five by Five does a great job of streaming it and getting sponsors. They're terrific. Uh, but I want to have a, you know, a website. I'm influenced by my friend, um, Jen, who does I the web knew, ahead. I knew you were going to say Jen Simmons. She does an amazing job with that. She does an, well, she does, she was my guest speaker at School of Visual Arts yesterday. This sounds all clubby and like we're all, you know, in bed with each other. But I mean, people know each other in this industry. It's one of the nice things about it. But Jen Simmons was my uh, guest speak, guest lecturer at School of Visual Arts last night. And she has just launched a website. And I've been looking at it. I'd been wanting to do that anyway. And then she did it. And I was like, that was the kick in the pants I needed. And I'm talking to some of the people here in my studio. I'm talking to Tim Murtaugh about it. And we started thinking maybe, maybe all I really need to do you know, I was thinking, well, I need to make a CMS or use a CMS. He said, like, maybe you can just use, you know, do a Tumblr. And I'm like, yeah, and maybe, maybe even just grab a template. And so that's sad because I feel like a consumer now. Mm. And I, I feel like less of a maker now. And that makes me sad. But I think web design is getting very hard now. I think web design is getting overly complicated in some ways. There's like wonderful challenges that are exciting. There's lots of new stuff to learn. And if you can't learn new stuff all the time, you shouldn't be in web design. But I'm also starting to go, starting to think like, I don't want to learn all these tools. Like whatever happened to just dragging a file via FTP. I still use fetch guys. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a, I'm a fossil. And it's like, so, uh, and I'm not, I'm not the only designer. I mean, I talk to other designers who are like, yeah, I want to fix this thing on the website, but I can't, I can't, I could do it in five minutes if we had a flat file, but it, the files are in a GitHub repository, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and, and like, it's like, it's wonderful, but I miss view source and FTP and all that stuff. Let's talk about tools in a minute because okay. I want to concentrate on this kind of idea of soul, if you like. And by that, I just mean some kind of um, individuality, personality, or some form of kind of, you know, originality in the work that we do. And, you know, I do look at a lot of stuff that, that we see in terms of design on the web now. And I feel almost kind of melancholic about it because I think that we're focusing so much in terms of our thoughts on processes and methods and mechanics instead of, you know, ideas that somehow we're just missing this soul and we're not making work that's memorable you know okay we're making work that might be easy to use but there's no magic in that are you saying that five years ago stuff was rougher but more memorable yeah i mean i'm not suggesting that we need to go back into the days when you know we had kind of mystery meat navigation and enormous kind of flash monster websites that nobody could figure out how to use but there was still i think at that point this real sense of creative opportunity 
And today, I, I think that we've lost it. And a lot of the designs that I see, I think, lack that kind of energy and spontaneity for, for all kinds of reasons. And I think that particularly over the last few years when we've all become obsessed with UX or obsessed with, you know, whatever method it is that's the you know, flavor of the month, that what we're making is we're just making designs that are safe, you know, and that's okay. I understand that for some people, that's what they want. They want things to be predictable and reliable. But because of that, we just end up making web designs that don't really stray beyond the boundaries of these conventions that we're establishing. And I thought for a while when I was writing this talk and giving it for the first couple of times, you know, I was just kind of whistling in the wind. But I have had a lot of positive responses to it. And I just think there's a growing sense that when we focus so heavily on UX or designing digital products, or God forbid, if I hear somebody else talk about we, we design digital experiences, what we're ending up with, just boring. We're just ending up with boring work. And I want to see something better. I don't think it's intentional, though. I think I think five years ago, stuff was better because we had figured out everything on up to that point. We figured out CSS. We figured out how to debug for IE. We figured out all that stuff so we could spend our time on other things like art direction, like intentional interaction design, like, like those things. And I think now we're back to the point where we still are figuring stuff out again. Like now we're figuring out how to make websites squishy and some of those pieces mm -hmm. are still hard, like advertising. It, it's hard. Mm, You've got a, a squishy hard. site that has a non-squishy thing in it. And so all of our effort is focused in, well, let me figure out how to do this and in order to prioritize that, I got to push some stuff to the side. I got to push design mm -hmm. to the side or interaction design or graphic design or art direction or a good CMS. I mean, I think it's a matter of where we put our focus. Like the, la the last four sites I made were Squarespace sites. <laughs> like I was like, ah, I'll just use a template and I'll just edit that because it was, it, that's where I want to spend my time. Like I have, I have a podcast too and I don't, I never update that site because it's hard because I'm like, well, I got to check out files and I got to get push and I got to do this and I got to do that. And for my personal site, that I don't have any tools. It's static because I don't because tools get in the way of that stuff. So that's why my personal site, I don't have a CMS behind it. It's just HTML and CSS and JavaScript on GitHub. Nice. Yeah, I love it because I can I can FTP if I want. I can git push if I want. I can, you know, like all the stuff that I feel comfortable with, I can do that. I held out so long. I was like the last WordPress user on the planet. And I love WordPress. Don't get me wrong. I love WordPress. I'm using WordPress all the time. But uh, I just really, for my personal set, I just held out forever. I think we need, you know, we still need a CMS that we don't have. I think yeah. that's the thing I want to, that's the thing I, I'm, I'm not going to even talk about it because I'll jinx myself. <laughs> but that's, uh, but I loved that manual process, just being admired in all those files. It was like I was as happy as a pig in mud, just, you know, with like a thousand windows open on my tiny monitor and my, my poor little modem, you know, ready to explode and all that. It was great. I can understand that we've got different competing things, things, different aspects of the job that are competing for our attention. You know, we've got to think about performance and we've got to think about responsiveness and content strategy and all these things, all these things are important, but you know, often they're somebody else's job. You know, we, we don't have to do all of those things inside I, one individual from a design point of view, 
from a creative point of view or a creative strategy point of view, surely those things shouldn't get in the way. Look, I, I don't understand your basic premise because I don't believe that having a solid content strategy means you have to have an uninteresting design. I don't believe that having good UX principles and good usability means you have to have an uninteresting design. I know what you're saying. There's, uh, there's lots of copycat work. There's lots of, there's some people figuring stuff out, like, like Dan's talking about. And then there's lots of other people with their heads down in the trenches who go like, let's get that framework. That framework seems to have solved all those problems. I get that. I get there's a lot of cookie cutter stuff because of frameworks, just like there used to be, you know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of cookie cutter stuff because like the people on this call were making templates that other people used. Right. And so, you know, we could, on the one hand, we were complaining about rep, rep, you know, repetitiveness, but on the other hand, we were fomenting it by saying, here's a really good template that you can use on Blogger. Right. I mean, there's going to be some of that, but I, 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 I think I, in the work that we try to do, I mean, I think we want it to be extremely usable and clever and delightful. All I think well, you can have all those things together. I don't think being professional means, uh, you know, and, and and being user focused means you can't be creative. You can't still work from your. Gut. I'm not suggesting that because you focus on UX or good content strategy, you're going to end up with something which is less creative. But somehow, we seem to focus on that to the exclusion of communication. Often, I mean, I, th- I talk about memorable. And, you know, I look back to TV commercials because I love TV commercials, particularly, you know, 19, the ones I grew up in, you know, PG Tips, Chimp, tea commercials, that kind of thing. You know, we can all point to a, a memorable campaign, a memorable TV commercial, poster campaign, magazine ad, whatever. But can you point to as memorable a website in recent times? I can't think of many. Wow. You are, okay, so do you guys remember, I mean, I talk about this. Do you remember, um... Wow. One of the big design blogs uh, said web design was a... S- design Observer, I think. Something like that, yeah. It wasn't Design Observer, but it was another one like that. And the guy's name... And his name's not Anil. It's not Anil Dash, but it's his name's sort of like that. Is it Armin? Armin. Armin Veet. That's it. And he said, you know, web design is second rate because, look, you know, the poster gave us... I mean, graphic design gave us Milton Glaser's Bob Dylan poster. Web design hasn't done that. And I just... I... I... You know, web, I can't dance to web design either. I think, you know, and I, peanut butter isn't architecture. I mean, I think these are different media and they have different things. I think memorable, the content is what's supposed to be memorable, right? And the feeling can be memorable. I remember what, uh, I remember some of my old site designs. I remember what, uh, Jason Santa Maria's site looked like eight years ago. I remember uh, Andy Clark's site before he changed it. I mean, you can remember those things because there was an idea. There was something which was okay. going beyond UX. It was going beyond content strategy or right. everything. It was it was Jason's idea of the old books. That the book design is the one. Right, that I always right, remember. and the graphic design for Dan Mall, like the. Everything, you know, it looked like a narrow newspaper kind of, and it was just like really about type. It was like people yeah. said to me, I really, you know, I really like the, the header. When we had the header on the stuff and nonsense site, which was basically the, the scooter cartoon guy, right. you know, getting older and fatter. Well, you still have something memorable. You still have like, uh, you have that res- wonderfully responsive ape stuff that's very playful. 
we've got some new playful ape stuff coming up in May or whenever we're going to launch it. But the the fact is, is that we I, remember I do those see your things. point, though. I do see your point. I there was like, an idea. There was some spirit. There was some personality. Okay, so three years ago, I threw out everything on my site into this like giant type version, and to to me, what we're and I said like this this uh, it's a book. It's a book page. I want this site's going to be this site's for reading, and it's like a a big a book page that you read while sitting you know two and a half feet back from your screen, whatever, or if it's a big screen or holding it you know at arm's length. Um, and that was an idea, right? And I think uh, that idea, I wasn't the only one who had it, that idea has become huge. And so right now there's a lot of sites that are designed like responsive books, right? There's just a lot of sites, especially content sites, even the New York Times, right? It's If you go into any article template, it's basically big type, one or two big pictures, um, and all the extraneous stuff removed as much as possible. And I, that's very stripped down. Uh, and it doesn't seem to have an idea in the way that you're talking about before. Like there isn't a metaphor or delightful texture or anything like that. But there is an idea, which is can the medium that we're reading on now be as readable, not just legible, but as readable as the book that we've had for a thousand years or the book we've had for 500 years since Aldous gave us the paperback, right? Can a book be it can a, can a website because people do almost all their reading now online and most of it's horrible because you're talking about saying this, but what you're not talking about is all the really horrible clickbait sites that most people spend their time reading. Like you won't believe who's been twerking. Right. And, and like <laughs> surge, you know, cosmetic surgery gone horrible for these naked celebrities, just crap like that. And like people just click through it. It's all written to just get people to click. And it's horrible. And it's a terrible reading experience besides being abysmally stupid content. But most people with good content are trying to figure out how to make it as readable as a book. So I, I think, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth. I think we're going to figure out ways to make sure that our work is above all readable, not just legible, readable. And then we can start bringing back the apes and the, this is the thing under a lens and, you know, that kind of playfulness. But Does Jeff, that make I sense? Part, I think part of what you're talking about too is that, you know, there's a concept behind that work, right? So a, a concept, it's, there's creative direction there. Creative direction meaning there's a perspective, there's a point of view. I mean, I think this is, this is particularly relevant because all three of us I know are do, the talks that we're doing at conferences and writing about and whatever are centered somewhat around this topic. Which that there's a perspective on that work. And sometimes that perspective might be, I want this presence to be as readable as possible. And that is, that's a concept. That is a creative direction. And, um, and in order to do that, I need to make this similar. I need to make this reminiscent of something that people already know as readable, which is books, which we've been reading for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the problem here is like the problem of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. The first person to have that concept Maybe, maybe doing that thing for a, a very intentional reason. But then the second person is just doing it because the first person did it. And the third person is just doing it because the second person did it. And when you get to the 10th person doing it, they have no idea why they're doing it. They just did it because the last 10 people did it. And, and now the intention, the creative direction, which, which art direction takes hold of, that's lost. That's all lost in translation. I mean, I, I can, I can tell you the, the mem a memorable site that I came across yesterday 
uh, or or last week. But I think part of the problem is that the, our definition of good design work on the web is so broad now. You know, a, a, mm. a well art directed site also has to be responsive, and it has to work on mobile, and a CMS has to be behind it, and it's got to be fast, and it's got to be performant, and it's got it's got to do all of these things. So when you say is this a good site or not, the criteria is just is endless. I mean, like, but that's I, I, that's your criteria as like a leading edge. Uh, designer developer and as a judge, you know, at award shows and such, I, I don't think that's, I, I, I do think a lot of people listening to this podcast will have the same criteria. Don't get me wrong, but I still think we're not even 10% of the field. Agreed. Most folks doing this kind of work, like performance is something they don't even think about. It's like if they, if they go, I'm going to have like a, a, an eight gigabyte photo because Apple does, you know, They'll be fighting with their boss right now to get that eight gigabyte photo on there, you know, or the boss will be making them do it and not even wanting to hear about performance. So yeah. I think, do you remember Chris Cassiano, you guys? I remember Chris. Okay. Mm-hmm. Chris is a photographer. He's a CSS. He's a lot of things. He was a member of the web standards project. Great guy. Um, he had a site called your CSS bores me in like 2003. So what was happening was basically. Me and Tontic and a bunch of other people were going, it's easy to do a two-column layout in CSS. You can even have a footer. Here's how. We kept on basically the industry needed certain kinds of things, and people were saying, I can only do this in a table. So some of us designers were basically biting the bullet and going, look, you can make that boring thing everyone needs in CSS. Here's how to do it. Or, yes, it is challenged to have a header and a footer. Wow, that's tough. And people would be like, you know, I'm not going to use CSS. I don't need to. A table can give me a header and footer. And so we're like, no, we're going to work really hard to give you that table and footer. So we were sort of stepping back in order to promote use of the tools, of these new tools, and in order to make sure browser makers kept supporting them and improving their support. Like some of us were just pushing kind of boring stuff. And I think to some extent that's happening now. Again, we're in that phase where... Yeah, totally. Like, like... In a weird way, like if I were Ethan Marcon and I invented a responsive design, well, if I were, that's silly, but if I were him, I don't know that I, like where he is now, he's really concerned with performance. And I, I marvel at that and think he's wonderful. Cause if I were him, I'd be like, shh, keep it quiet. Let's, you know, let's just let people make awe inspiring websites. The Flash people had this for years and now we can make awe inspiring websites. Let's just do that. Let's just make gigantic images. Like for him, within a year, within a year of turning the whole world on to responsive web design to start pushing really hard about like, let's not use these web fonts and let's not, you know what I mean? Let's, let's have a performance budget. All the, all the folks who are talking about that stuff. I think that performance budget stuff super important. Um, I think it is super important in its place, but it has to it has to have a place alongside the creative. It has to have a place alongside you know the concept or the idea or the strategy that Dan was talking about. Okay, and I think that one of the one of the things whenever we get into this kind of conversations, we all start talking about well, something has to be easy to use. You know, you mentioned it has to be good to read. You know, we have to be legible and readable and everything else, which is, to me, part of a great design. Right. But when you step over one step further from that, you start to get into conversations, which happens so, so readily now, where people start talking about digital products as if that was all we designed on the web. And actually, no, there is a huge um, 
place. There's a, the web is a medium, not just for products, but you know, for communication, for ideas, for advertising. In at the end of the day, you know, for conveying these messages. And everything that I read at the moment, as part of our kind of industry media, it just amplifies these conversations, these voices about product design, and nobody's talking about ideas anymore. So here's here's a site that I came across last week. It's called Cinderella Past Midnight. It's on Tumblr at the URL cinderellapastmidnight.tumblr.com. It was made by Watson Design Group, who I think is doing excellent work lately. Like their, their work, so they do a lot of movie work. They did all the Hunger Games uh, websites, which I think are stellar. It's a beautifully art directed um, site, but it doesn't work if JavaScript fails. And I think there are a ton of people that look at that site. And they turn off JavaScript and they go, this site sucks. And I think that's a problem. That, yeah, that's a problem. But, uh, I remember back, God, it's coming up to 10 years ago, Jeffrey, when we first spoke at that first app media in London. And I remember we just launched an e-commerce site for Disney. We hadn't worked with the, you know, the main Disney brand. Um, but I had done a huge amount of research on Disney and what they were doing online and everything that I had done had to kind of key into, to, to what was going on internationally. And somebody, and I, um, I, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was a speaker at the conference that was criticizing Disney for a horribly inaccessible website. And at the time, Disney site was horribly inaccessible and that was inexcusable, but it didn't take away from the fact that the thing looked beautiful and there was a strategy. Yeah. There was a, there was a, an enormous amount of highly creative graphic design and some really good messaging that was going on in that site. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, it's totally slippery slope. And this is why the conversation I think is important because so does that mean that we should just excuse sites that are inaccessible because it looks beautiful? I mean, no, that's a problem not. too, you know? No, of course not. But it's a different problem, you know? It's a completely well, different we, problem. Well, we tend to uh, sequester off in silos. And even in the design community, there are like the accessibility people who don't talk to the design people, the design people who don't talk to the accessibility people. That, you know, I mean, I, I think the more we just have conversations between all the groups, I hate, I hate to sound like Pollyanna, but I think if we all talk and learn about each other's specializations and share each other's concerns, we'll have better design. And, and people need to rally, like, th there needs to be people that champion that too. I mean, that's, that was one of the great things, the greatest things about the CSS Zen Garden was that at the time people were saying, well, you can make a site with CSS that looks boring, or you can make a beautiful site with tables. And Dave Shea was like, I don't think those two are mutually exclusive, and I'm going to prove it to you. That was what your CSS bores me was about also, Chris Casciano's thing. He, he, every day he took the same content and, and rejiggered it. He's not a designer really, he's a developer. So they were bizarre designs, but that's okay. He was basically proving content, you know, you don't have to make these cookie cutter designs. I just want to say, I'm looking at the Cinderella Pass Midnight site. You know what's impressing me? That the stepsisters aren't ugly. To finally, <laughs> finally, they're making a version of the story where the good, the bad people are just bad people. They're not bad people with hook noses and, and, yeah. uh, hair lips and all this stuff because that's always been such a terrible message. Every Disney film, every fairy tale that the good people were the pretty ones, you know, and, and probably like the racially pure ones, you know, <laughs> underlying underlying message she had skin as white as snow and the bluest eyes and like okay we get it yeah she was the good one we get it we get what you're saying thanks now we have Kate blanchett 
Yeah, Kate Blanchett. So, so the evil lady is also a bl- blue-eyed blonde. Uh, but of course the good lady is also a blue eyed blonde. Uh, and there's still a prince. So that's a little frustrating. They should you know more about Disney films than any no, man I know. No, not really. I mean, my kid doesn't watch them. She hates them. Actually, Doug Bowman probably knows more about Disney than any man on this planet. Yeah. I, I, uh, we started, we got halfway through Fantasia. I was sort of disappointed that she didn't love it. Like I loved it when I was her age. But, you know, there weren't as many art film choices back then when yeah, I was I 10. When I saw Fantasia, I was just like, a cartoon could be abstract. Like, that, you know, wow, they're making colors for the music? <sighs> that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, now, of course, that's it's just ex- expected. Did you guys get the sound effect? I'm not sure if that was uh, too subtle. No, I missed that completely. You guys couldn't hear the sound effect? No, do the sound effects. Okay, so colors for music. <sighs> That's pretty cool. Oh, I thought you were just breathing deeply. <laughs> thought it was an age thing. It was like a, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me another couple weeks. I remember, I think I have a screenshot of this in my Transcending CSS book. I actually think, that, do you remember there was a, a Site very similar to this for the Corpse Bride, the Tim Burton film. Wow, yeah, what a, from what a, about ten years ago. That was probably one of those horrible kind of flash monsters, but again, had some personality. And now, when you when you Google Corpse Bride, you get an iTunes preview of the from the iTunes Store. Maybe that's what I get because I'm on a Mac. We talked about tools earlier on, and we talked about. I feel like a tool. A little bit about process. And, you know, I just think that, that, I mean, first of all, it can be quite overwhelming. You know, there's so much information that you feel that you kind of have to at least know is out there, even if you're not learning it for yourself or, you know, absorbing it. But lots of conversations about process, lots of things. At the moment, you know, the flavor of the moment is atomic design and kind of versions of it. And that's not just the flavor of the month in terms of, you know, our conversations, but, you know, clients are actually phoning me up asking for that kind of stuff now, which is interesting. Dan, you probably have something to say about this. I sure do. But continue, Andrew. So I was just going to say that, you know, we've got web design magazines online and offline. They're all just full of this stuff. They're all full of advice about principles and process. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But we're not reading anything about the creative, the concepts, the creative thinking, you know, the kind of humanity, really. When was the last time that we had an article on a list apart that was about color or typography or anything like that? It's it's missing. There's a part missing from from our vocabulary about design right now. I'm going to look because I think we did it pretty recently. But we, but, you know, we did live font interpolation on the web by Andrew Johnson, and we did a Nick Sherman piece also on type. But, it, you know, but still, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, a list apart, you know, eight years ago was CSS tricks, basically. Mm-hmm. And then now Chris Coyer does that, and he does an excellent job, and that's great. A list apart now is more like the core model and from empathy to advocacy. There are a lot of very UXy articles in here. And I have similar feelings to Andy. I'm the publisher of A List Apart, and I love it. And we have an amazing staff and amazing writers. 
But sometimes I will go like, wow, where's that next great design article? Because I really want that too. And I find that the next great design article, people are publishing on their own blog, which, uh, which mm. I can't fault them for at all. That's great. Or they're publishing it on Medium, which I find a little puzzling, although I've talked to authors who do that. It's puzzling only because Medium is a platform for anything. So if you want to reach an od- a design audience, why wouldn't you publish in a design publication? But that's, you know, that's my point of view toward the thing. But I, I know exactly what you're saying there. You know, as we become more professional, as we think more about UX, or as we talk about, you know, how to incorporate this command line tool into, into your workflow process and everything, part of me really misses the dumb f- way that we used to do this stuff. Cause it felt, I don't know. I'm, I'm sentimental about it. Like I'm sentimental when I see nineties graphics. Nineties graphics are terrible. Worse than eighties <laughs> graphics. Like yeah. if you look at the credits for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that's appalling. What they did, to, and I love that show, but what they did to type, right? Yeah, because that's it's when Photoshop a, became popular. That's appalling. And I, I look at like even the first stuff I did, like like you know, you you pick a font, and then you know some font nobody really uses that you know looked edgy, and then you'd like apply seventeen coats of bullshit to it, right? But but we liked it. It was dumb, but we liked it. But you know, you know what I'm talking about, like. Seven bevels, eight glows. Kai's power tools, man. Kai's power. Oh tools. yeah. Set, set the type in Illustrator. Use a three D program to like give the type some relief. Set it at an angle, and then start messing. Then import it into Photoshop and use Kai's power tools on it. You know, and like. I guess then, what I'm saying is that if I was new to the industry today, if I was coming up out of either art school or you know uh, whatever they do to learn web design these days in university, if I was looking at our industry right now, or at least they read at least the corner of our industry, because I know the industry is way way bigger than you know our small kind of you know web standards right. UXE area, because right. But if I was coming in fresh and I looked at the industry and wanted to learn now. I would really, really struggle to find out how to learn about good taste and how to have ideas. I can find out a ton about bloody empathy or about <laughs> performance budgets or something like that. But where do I go to learn about soul? You know? You're so angry. You're I'm not. <laughs> You're so angry. Ah, uh, it's refreshing. I love your anger. <laughs> it's so you, not, you guys have been. I'm doing not this. laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm like I'm I'm laughing with you, and I'm laughing like like Buddha. Like Buddha laughs like at the suffering of the world, right? Right. The the laughing Buddha is not like a clown. It's like a character that sees all the suffering in the world, and then and then the response is to laugh. I believe so. To grant not comparing myself, except that I I like that idea of like. Transcending the pain through laughter. <laughs> I just, I do get frustrated, as you can probably gather. I know, I, I get it. It's, uh, but those articles can be hand wavy and bullshitty too. Yeah. In a weird way, Andy, I mean, taste is something that you learn by having bad taste first. You can, you can certainly, you know, you can get an Ellen Lupton book on type. You can get lots of books on, on type and graphic design and develop taste that way. You can go to lectures, but it, I think a lot of, for me, developing taste was 
making lots of amateurish crap that is hideously embarrassing now. I showed I showed one of my first websites to the my daughter's classmates today on a computer. Their eyeballs. I said this was considered good design. I said this was considered good design, not good graphic design, but good web design back then. Can you imagine what the internet was like? And it was like I was showing them uh, a privy, you know, like I was showing them outdoor toilet. It was just they were so shocked. So, so shocked. Um, so I think, you know, I love that, that now people think about, you know, line height as a matter of course. They think about measure as a matter of course. I know what you're saying about the conformity and, and all that. Um, I, I don't know where people go to, to get inspiration, but you know, a lot of times when I go to a thing that's supposedly about inspiration, that turns me off too and seems kind of like, some guy who's much more talented than me shows me his portfolio. Then some lady who's much more talented than me shows us their portfolio. Then somebody else who's more talented than me shows their portfolio. And I'm like, is that inspiring? You know, or is it just they have a better career and they're better designers? So I, I go to those kind of conferences and I'm like, my soul isn't satisfied. I kind of want takeaways. So you know? I, I, I run an apprenticeship. I have, I have three apprentices right now and. Part of what I'm struggling with is how do I teach them good taste? And I think one, one thing is that good taste is relative. You know, if I like beats and you don't like beats, that doesn't mean that I don't have good taste or th and that you do. No, they sound like you're wearing a biscuit tin on your ear. Because you can actually get better sound by putting your head into a trash can and having somebody kick it. They feel good. The sound is not good. <laughs> I like Bowers and Wilkins, but we're, we're derailing them. But I do like Bowers and Wilkins. I think they have good sound. Um, I haven't found a good a good pair of headphones. That's what I have. I have Bows and Wilkins. Huh? They're good. The the new ones are. Uh, I use the old ones here in the studio because they are the best. The new ones are probably slightly better in quality, but uh, they they don't fit right on my small head. Dan, we've derailed you talking about headphones when you were actually talking about. That's okay. I'll, about... I'll come back. I'll come back. I mean, I just I use Harman Kardon sound sticks, and I've had those for years, and I still love them. But I just I don't have any good headphones. Um, but yeah, so, so good taste is relative, I think, um, because part of it is, is what, you, what is your taste as opposed to what is good taste. And I went to design school, yes. so I learned design formally, but I learned from a, you know, one of my professors, John Langdon, he, he didn't learn formally. He learned, he developed his own taste. And the way that he told me that he did that was he would just browse through magazines and he would say, I like that. Mm. I don't like that. I like that. I don't like that. And then he would inventory. Why do I like that? Okay, well, it looks the patterns here are that all the things that I like have big type or are sans serif or are black and white or, you know, you are designed at this angle or have this aspect ratio to them. And he just he just like amassed a collection and then said, what, what are the patterns that emerge from this collection of things that I like? And what are the patterns that emerge from the collection of things that I don't like? And that is my own taste. And so it's, he like, it, he sort yeah. of like backdoored into his own taste. The way we do with something that we're, it's not our job. Like if you love hip hop or you love jazz, yeah. when you're first learning that music, when you're first listening to it, you're going to make some obvious, or if you were like getting into punk, the first thing you might do is listen to the Ramones in the clash and like, okay. And that's fine. That's great. Those guys are great in the clash, especially, but that's not, you know, after a while you develop your own taste around it. And, and, you know, before you know it, you're like, sort of embarrassed about the slightly poppy stuff that you liked, but really interested in some, you know, band that never tuned their guitars, but had this amazingly driven, uh, poet 
like like the Minutemen. You know what yeah, I mean? You just got to listen to a bunch of stuff to know what you like. You know, and the you same listen, thing is yeah. true for design. You just got to look at everything. And it's then you can develop your taste from that. You know, you got to look at everything. And, and so, and I think also the job is different now. I mean, you guys have been doing this longer than I have. And I started in 99. And the job then was we have this set of content and design a website for this set of content. The job now is different. Like you have, in order to art direct something, you have to have content. You can't art direct nothing. But the job exactly. now is kind of to design nothing, like design shells for content that you can't plan. So how do you art direct shells? That's one of the reasons we have that. You're absolutely right. And it's one of the things I've been railing against for years. Like my most popular tweet of all time is about that. It's about like, I can't design when I don't know what the site is about. I don't know who uses it. I don't know what it's for. Getting back to Andy's point about like having an idea, having, having a theme, you know, if, yeah. you, if, if you don't know the content, if you're not either creating the content, you can create it or you can be, you know, a designer working for someone. So you're a vehicle of it, but you have to know what it is. Otherwise, you make a pretty show. Exactly. I mean, say what, say what you want about Snowfall, but they had the content to Art Direct, so that's why right. Snowfall is Snowfall. You right. Because they because they weren't like, well, we'll just Art Direct something with a title and a couple of paragraphs, and then maybe we'll have a video here that we don't know what that video is going to be. I mean, you can't create. I mean, I don't. I don't. I can't think of a way that you can create Snowfall without knowing the content of Snowfall. <laughs> We've <laughs> no. talked about this word. We've talked about Art Direction. It's come up several times. And one of the conclusions in my talk is that I think that we desperately need more art direction on web design. But can somebody explain to listeners and to me what we actually mean by art direction versus design or versus creative direction? Dan, you've, you've written a bunch about this stuff. Yeah, so I wrote an article for A List Apart a couple of years ago about art direction and the difference between art direction and design. And... I mean, I guess the way that I sum it up is that art direction is about the feel of something, not about the look. You know, the design part is about the look. And I know that's an oversimplification, but that's kind of the best way I can explain it in a sentence. You know, when, when I do, when I do work for a client, the feedback that I want from them is on art direction. I don't want feedback about design. I don't want them to tell me to move the logo to the left or make this bigger or change this to red because that's design feedback. That's what I'm good at. I want them to tell me though, this feels too loud or it feels too soft, or it doesn't feel energetic enough, or it feels too blue, or it feels too whatever. Like, that's the feedback that I want. And then I can use my design skills, not my art direction skills, but my design skills, my graphic design skills, to solve those problems. If it feels too soft, okay, I can do all sorts of things to make it louder. I can make it bigger, I can change the position of it, I can change the color, I can do all the graphic design techniques that I know in order to make it feel right. And if it feels right, then I feel like it's art directed well. Art, art directions also, um, it's really about communicating ideas visually. So in a film, right? If all the furniture is slightly overscale and we're in a, a police interrogation room where an innocent man is being interrogated, uh, and the camera is mounted high and looks down on the character, we feel the character is helplessness. They're like a child. It's subtle. But the art direction is communicating to us. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's Tim Burton, it's obvious and huge. But if, if it's another director and another art director, it's a subtle thing. But what they're really, you know, they're communicating or you'll see everyone's wearing black and one person's wearing red. And our eye goes to the person wearing red. That's partly designed, but it's also, it can be art direction communicating. This person is different. They think differently, right? Um, 
you can learn art direction by watching Hitchcock films because he does tons of stuff like that. There's a, a scene in Foreign Correspondent where a man commits murder and they're chasing the killer, but it's Amsterdam when it, and it's the rain because it always rains in Amsterdam at this time of year. So the guy's looking and everyone has identical umbrellas and identical bowler hats and, you know, he can't find it. And so he's basically looking for a, a needle in a haystack, but it's visualized as a killer under an umbrella under us in a sea of similar umbrellas art direction uh i once read about art direction versus design as like the cover of the economist or really other kind of edit strong editorial photos there was a an editorial there was a photo years ago of Mah by um wow great art director from the 70s and i'm blanking on his name george oh man i hate when i forget people's names george lois George Lois, right? And there was a picture of Muhammad Ali as Saint Matthew with his arms behind him with arrows in his chest, right? And so it was a way of saying visually, this boxer is being crucified because of his political beliefs, right? Um, it was very strong and in your face. Recently, there was a Newsweek article about, uh, the new parenting and it showed a woman breastfeeding her like looked like seven-year-old son it shocked and upset people because it you know it was pretty over the top but that was art direction that wasn't design design would be picking the colors of her outfit and you know arranging the fabrics for the room design is i it's tricky in a way because when we're talking about the web and we're talking about interaction design that's ideas too but it's more ideas of how I don't know. It's complicated. D yeah. Design communicates just like art direction communicates, but there are differences. There was, um, a Chinese, a painting of a Chinese lady, but she had a mask on during the SARS epidemic. No, it was Chairman Mao with the SARS mask. Yeah. yeah and that the was on the, on the economist. And it was like, that's art direction. It could have been oh. designed a bunch of different ways, but that was art direction. I got it. I saw it and I got this idea instantly or, or, a Japanese 16th century drawing, but the, the character is wearing um, a Walkman. Right, Dan, somewhere. you have the best quotes, because I'm just looking at this article now, and you said, design is the technical execution of that connection. Do the colors match? Is the line length comfortable for long periods of reading? Is the product photo in focus? Does the typographic hierarchy work? Is the composition balanced? And then you go on to talk about the fact that, you know, designer creates the look, but that feel, again, that's, that's an art director's role. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the ways that I learned about art direction is just by studying good art directors. Like, like, do you remember the the uh, Volkswagen ads from the sixties? Yes. You know, Helmut, yeah. Helmut Krohn art directed those. Those are brilliantly art directed. Yeah. I mean, like, it's it's why you make the choices, you know, not the choices themselves. So it could have been readable, it could have been legible, and it could have felt totally wrong. But the reason that he picked Futura, and the reason that he, you know, he placed the image just right, and the reason that it was you know, black and white in that way. Like all of those things are about good art direction. But that and, is and, what yeah. we're missing. That's the whole point of this talk that I'm giving. That sort of, I called it soul because I couldn't really express it in any other way. But exactly what you just said, we don't learn enough about. We don't get taught that or we don't see that or we don't hear that at conferences or read it in magazines. Are you going to start teaching art direction? Uh, or, or talking about art direction at conferences, I think that was it. That's a great idea. I personally don't think I'm qualified because I didn't, you know, I didn't learn art direction in any kind of structure in any kind of structured way. Um, I think somebody like Dan would be better positioned to to talk about that kind of stuff. But you know, I would pay to hear Dan talk about this kind of stuff because I think that it's it's just so immensely valuable. 
So does it bother either of you when you hear about the art directional use case in the responsive images? Oh, it bothers me so much. Yeah, oh, all the God. time. Yeah, <laughs> okay. absolutely. So explain uh, explain to listeners who aren't familiar what 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 is the art directional use case in responsive <laughs> design, and then and then why it bugs you. Okay, anyway. so I think it starts from a good place. I think, and uh, I'll, this is what I understand of it, and maybe I just don't understand much of it, but responsive images are about having, maybe it's oversimplification, but having the right image size for the right context and how you go about doing that on the web. Do you use the picture element? Do you use a polyfill? Do you use, you know, source set or like all sorts of stuff that I don't know about? And but, well, the, but the use concept case for it. The, the concept is, like you said, the image changes sizes to fit the layout and whatnot, and then the context, go on. Yeah, and so the, the art direction part of it is you can't just take an image and scale it down. And and so let's say, you, you know, I think the, the prototypical example is you've got a picture of President Obama, and on a mobile phone, you can't just scale that down because he would be eensy-weensy in the photo. Instead, what you want to do is you want to crop all the stuff outside of the subject and make his make the subject of the photo a little bit larger. And they're calling that art direction. So, well, so, really so, yeah, wait, wait, wait. So, so, on the big screen, there's a picture of, of President Obama with his arms spread, and you can see that he's talking about, um, he's talking about. Uh, factories and how America's getting back to work. And there's these factory stuff behind him and it's very visible in the big picture. And, and, you know, that makes sense. It's that, that picture is telling a, a complex story, but when you shrink it down to a tiny, tiny thumbnail for a phone or even for a thumbnail on a desktop, if you just shrink it, if you just scale it, there's a tiny man standing somewhere. It's not yep. the president and it's not a factory. So do you focus on his face do you perhaps, this is what makes it art direction. If you say, perhaps you crop him out altogether and focus on the factory or you focus on the side of Obama's face and you can see one factory tool behind him in your cropped picture. You know, I think in theory, it's an opportunity for real art direction. You say like, in this layout, what picture works best? What picture communicates what I need to communicate? In this other layout, how do I take the same picture and communicate? So that's what is meant by art direction. I think that's why they called it that. But but what ends up happening is just people say, "Oh yeah, art direction. That's where you crop a picture." And I think yeah. that's 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 what's I think that's a thing. About. Yeah, that's a that's thing. What, I mean, I think, that's all people are hearing right now. I think philosophically, I have trouble with the idea that you can automate art direction. Oh, you you can't. Of course, you can't art direct. No, of course not. You can't. I guess a lot of people will also remember that trend from a few years ago where I think Jason Santamaria did it and Greg Wood did it and I think uh, Trent Walton probably still does do it where you'll do a blog post and every design is different. You know, every design of every post is is different in some way. Um, and they were kind of called art-directed posts. And I think a lot of people will think of those when we talk about art direction. Remember when we when they, when we called those bloggazines? Do you remember that? No, i never heard that oh, before. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm uh, so glad that I never heard that either. So uh, it's awful. art direction became conceptual during uh, advertising's creative revolution in the 60s, in the late mm -hmm. 50s, early 60s, when Bill Bernbach of Doyle Dane Bernbach said, copywriter, art director, sit together. I don't care who comes up with the headline. I don't care who comes up with the visual. Bring me something brilliant that communicates. It, uh, the famous story is uh, a copywriter or an art director brought Bart Bernbach, a picture of a man crying uh, for some sad, 
you know, some, some sad messaging. And Birnbach said, great. Now bring me a picture that'll make a man cry. Right. So, um, but before that, art directors were really more like designers. It was like, that was the, Art direction was what they called it when you did it in a newspaper, for example, and uh, or in advertising, and you'd choose an illustrator or maybe do the illustration yourself. At the beginning of Mad Men, the art director, the old-fashioned art directors they have, uh, they're old-fashioned art directors. They're, they basically, they wait for Don to come up with the idea. He's the copywriter, the idea man. And then um, then the other guy draws it. You know, yeah. make, make, um, That's old-fashioned. It used to be... The account executive would figure out the strategy, convey it to the copywriter. The copywriter would go drink a bunch of gin and then write a headline, you know, it sizzles or whatever. And then the art director would be the person who illustrated or hired the illustrator, picked the type, but basically made it pretty. Kind of yeah. like the way web designers used to be a few years ago at too many agencies and still are at some places. The person at the end of the line who makes it pretty instead of the person who is brought in from the beginning to figure out the interaction and the content and the concept. And, and if you consider the, the, the origin of that term art director, I mean, it really is the person who was directing the art, right? So like, yeah. so in that time you, you didn't have like, could it be photography or could it be, you know, it was art, right? You had to draw the illustration, but what style of illustration? Is it art deco? Is it going to be modernist? Should we do a cubist thing here? So really it was about the copywriter would write the headline and then what would be the right art style to match that headline? And then when photography was introduced, it was like, oh, well, now we have a new piece of art that we could integrate. So is photography the better way to quote unquote art direct this? Or would, would an illustration do that? And, and so it's really about directing the art that comes with the piece. Nowadays, like it, when, when it comes to web design, we don't really direct art in that way. You know, when no. we, talk, we talk about design and we talk about it rather than talking about should it be art deco or should it be, you know, postmodern or should it be impressionist? That was one step down, I felt. I mean, I much preferred art – for me, I much preferred web design to advertising. But one step down, I felt, was, you know, when you're in advertising, you pick the photographer and you and you art direct the shoot and you say, you know – the client can always say no, but you say these kids are best and, and this model looking this way and let's let's do this on a beach or let's do this, in, you know, on Seamless. You make these decisions. Right. You draw what you want and then it happens. Yeah. And on the okay. web, you're at the end of a line and they go like, here's the photographs and they dump them on you. It's very rare to be able on a website to go, we'd like to come do a shoot. I, I, love to do I, I try to suggest this all the time. I mean, you know, I'm just talking about um, actually going and art directing or helping to art direct uh, a little video shoot for a client of ours when we come back from Australia. Um, you know, I'll be spending a day with them because just because I want the thing to look how it should look on the website. There's going to be nothing worse than getting, you know, a video to place into our design that for some reason has something that doesn't work. And I want to be there to make sure that everything just falls together so that it's part of this entire concept that I've got for the design of this site. My friend Fred uh, did a, it was a, his client was New York based and wanted some New York background shots and Fred convinced him to hire a photographer which was great. And then the guy didn't like any of the shots and because he had bad taste and they ended up with stock. And it's like, it's very frustrating to, and they were good. They were good photographs, I believe. Uh, I took them. 
<laughs> I think they were very good indeed. They were excellent but photos. They were excellent. But they were art directed. I mean, he would say, no, just do lo-, like he would say, just use your telephoto lens. I just want the tops of these buildings. Get, can you get the birds over on that wire? I mean, he was really getting unusual stuff, not the boring stock stuff that says, we went to a stock photo house and picked a picture of the Empire State Building. We're hacks. But something that said to someone who lives here, this is the feeling of New York City. You recognize it. It couldn't be from any other place in the world. You know, it was like, it wasn't the arch at Washington Square Park, but it was a scene that had to be Washington Square Park. He did it the way, um, Jim Jarmusch does shoots where he'll go to, he'll go to New Orleans for a, for a film and, and go to, um, what's the big street? Uh, uh, Bourbon, Bourbon Street. Street. He'll, he'll go to Bourbon Street and turn his back on the part of Bourbon Street that everybody knows and says, what does the other side look like? And fil- have his cinematographer film that. And so that's what Fred was doing. And it was really nice. It had a real unique feeling to it, my friend Fred Gates. And uh, it wasn't that I'm a great photographer. It was that he was a great art director yeah. telling me what to shoot and picking the right shots. And then the client was like, yeah. They just wanted, you know, they, want, they wanted uh, Empire State Building. So what are you going to do? I mean, that's what a, that's what a good art director does is is be able to make the good choices and and bring a point of view. Exactly, it's it's just perspective. And and right now in the web design industry, art director is really just a pay grade above designer. Like that's what most art directors are at agencies. Like you become yeah. a senior designer and then they they can't promote you anymore. So I don't know. We'll call them art director and we they can can't give pay a you anymore. Raise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. We don't really have. Our medium is wonderful. It really excites me. We're making something that's changing the world. I totally believe that. And we're giving a voice to the voiceless. We're taking our, we're giving ourselves a voice who, who may have been voiceless. It's really a wonderful thing that we do. But in terms of art direction, yeah, we're, we're kind of, uh, not where we should be, not where we could be. It, it doesn't seem to be budgeting for it. Then again, five years ago, there was no budget for content strategy. Exactly. And you had we're getting to just, there. You were getting there. We we had to disguise it as UX, and now we say content strategy, and the client knows why. So, you know, four, three years ago, you couldn't budget for responsive design. You just did it on, you know, you had to do yeah, it exactly uh, on your own on your own dime. And now uh, they expect it. So, uh, you know, if enough of us make a fuss like you're doing, Andy, uh, then maybe this we'll see a change in this. I mean, that's how that's how I do art direction. You have all the best quotes. I'm looking at your article here because you said art direction combines art and design to evoke a cultural and emotional reaction. Without art direction, we're left with dry, sterile experiences that are easily forgotten. I couldn't have written that any better for my talk, right? That is exactly the proposition that I have at the beginning of my talk. What we're making right now is dry and sterile. Well, thanks, but I have to credit, you know, the art direction that I got on the article from my editors from, from Jeffrey and Carolyn. So, uh, you know, I wish I came up with that on my own. But Carolyn I, Wood. Yeah, Carolyn Wood. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's the value of good art directors. They help, they help direct the thing, you know, that I do, the way that I do art direction is the same way that I first did responsive design and the first, the, you know, in the way that I first did CSS when everybody's building tables, you just sneak it in. Right. Like it's just, it's what I'm going to do to make the quality of the work better. And I don't have to say it, you know, I, and it, it starts in the sales process. You just build enough budget that you can go and art direct a photo shoot. Yes. Exactly. You don't have a conversation about it. It's just par for the course. Yeah. You don't, you don't say I'm going to make this accessible. You just have a sufficient budget that you'll be able to do that. Yeah. I feel like you you don't have to ask for permission for that. It's you want, you hired me to make a nice site for you. That requires me going and art directing a video shoot. I'm going to go art direct a video shoot. 
And if I have to eat the cost, fine, I'll eat the cost because what you, what you, you know, hopefully I don't. But, uh, if you've hired me to do it, then, you know, if you've hired me to make a good site for you, and I believe as the creative director on the project that that's what's going to make a good site for you, I'm going to do that. I can't think of a better place to leave it. What a fabulous conversation. Wow. I love this. Yeah, you guys are awesome. You guys are great. <laughs> we need to keep having this kind of conversation. I mean, not just on podcasts, but, you know, I think at conferences and, you know, all of these opportunities for, for, for talking that we have, because, uh, I think these things really matter. And I thought that I was whistling yeah. in the wind, but actually I do get a general sense that people are feeling that we need art direction. We need more creativity or creative ideas in what we're doing, not just making something easy to use. People can follow you, Dan, on Twitter. You are, and I always get this wrong. I always like at you and it's the wrong Dan Mall. <laughs> yeah. On Twitter, I am at Daniel Mall. How very formal of you. Yes. Yes. It's very proper. Capital D, capital M. No, it doesn't matter. DanielMall.com where I write infrequently. And of course, Jeffrey, you're at Zeldman. Z like zebra. E-L-D like David. M-A-N man, man. <laughs> or me, at Malaki. To ask questions and suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at unfinished.bz or bz. Or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Lovely. <laughs>